0: You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. The dictionary defines foundation in a couple of different ways. Um, First of all, foundation is a basis upon which uh, something stands or is supported, Um, another definition is a body or ground upon which something is built. Uh, The risk that you run from building your house on a shoddy foundation is unthinkable. You just don't want to go there. No matter where you live, um, no matter what your house is made out of, um, no matter uh, what kind of house you have, it doesn't doesn't make a difference. The first priority question to ask is, what am I building my house on? Kind of sounds spiritual, doesn't it? It's because Jesus talked about this. Um, Jesus was infamous for taking these just very everyday, plain and simple things and teaching us through them. If you look in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, okay? So he's just spent a whole lot of time teaching. And at the very, very end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus ends it with this Chapter 7 of Matthew, verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine, if you hear everything I've taught you today and do them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell. The floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Jesus says, I am the foundation, build your life upon me, build your life on my words. Well, if you turn to Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is entering Caesarea Philippi with the disciples. And what's important to know is that in Caesarea Philippi at this time, there were a whole lot of idols. There were a whole lot of false gods. So now we understand why Jesus turns to his guys coming into the city and he says, hey guys, who do people say that I am? They say, well, some people think that you're John the Baptist or Elijah, like reincarnated. Some people think that you're one of the prophets come back. And then Jesus turns and pushes one of the most important questions of all time back at the disciples. Well, who do you say that I am? And you see in verse 16, Simon Peter replies, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. Jesus just changed his name from Simon to Peter or Petros, which means the rock. I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, not Peter, but on Peter's confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. On this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What I want you to notice that Jesus said there in that statement was, I will build my church. So Jesus has said, I'm the foundation Build your life upon me. Then Jesus comes along later and says, oh, and by the way, I'm the builder as well. Over the next few weeks, we're taking a pause from our series in Exodus, and we're going to look at our foundation, what the church is built upon. And one thing that we know going in is that Jesus is the builder and the foundation, what we're specifically going to see over these next weeks in the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2, next week Acts chapter 4, the following week Acts chapter 6. This is like a teacher giving ahead of time information that you can study and be prepared for the test. We're going to see the evidences that take place when Jesus is building his church. So turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, and leading up to where we're going to be, Jesus has died on the cross, risen from the dead. He spent time with over 500 of his disciples over a 40-day period before he ascends back to the Father. He meets his disciples on a hillside and he says to them, I'm giving you all the authority that I have in heaven and on earth and I'm sending you out to go and make disciples. And Jesus also tells them to go and be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. If you need that calling that Chip was exhorting you to, to find out, hey, Lord, where do you want me to go? There it is, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Go and be my witnesses. And Jesus ascends back to the Father. Then, just as Jesus had promised his disciples, he sends the Holy Spirit. And the disciples are filled with the Spirit. And on the day of Pentecost, Peter gets up and, for the very first time in public, preaches the gospel. Look what it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So the gospel is preached, over 3,000 people are saved and here we have the beginning of the New Testament church. So look at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers and all came upon every soul. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So the word, the gospel is preached. Um, Thousands of people are saved and baptized and the church begins. And it tells us in Acts chapter two, verse 42, that right there, the beginning of the New Testament church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They devoted themselves themselves. The word devotion, we don't use that word very much these days, not in the verb sense. Um, Probably in a room like this, if we use the word devotion, we're referring to like this little time we spent in our Bible in the morning at the kitchen table. We're not talking about it as it's normally defined. Devotion is this very determined, persistent dedication and loyalty to something or someone. Many of you in this room are highly likely devoted to a sports team of some sort. We get that way. Some of us are devoted to hobbies. Some of us are devoted to a particular diet or exercise plan. Some people are devoted to a band. They'll drive hundreds of miles to go and see their favorite band play. Some of you are probably devoted to a TV show. Like you've got it on your DVR. Most people don't even know that you can rank and prioritize shows on your DVR, but you do. You know, you've seen all the first runs. You've seen all the reruns. You've seen them all. Okay. You're devoted We know devotion. Here's the thing, though. As followers of Jesus Christ, there is nothing on the face of this earth. There is nothing in history. There is nothing out there that we ought to be more devoted to than him. If we're his followers, if we've been filled by his spirit, the devotion of our hearts and our lives ought to be directed to at him. This ought to cause us at least at some level to begin asking questions like, hey, Lord, does my life look like yours? Do my words sound like yours? Do my habits look like yours? Lord, am I doing what you did? Am I saying what you said? I think that we over cliched it. We did away with the effectiveness of, of it, but... It really is more than uh, something that you ought to stick on a bracelet, the idea of asking yourself, what would Jesus do? But again, I mean, we stuck it on a bracelet. It became a catchy little thing. And so now it's like, oh, yeah, we we don't wear those anymore. Who cares about the bracelet? The questions, what's important. I have a decision in front of me. I'm going to pray over this. Maybe I ought to consider, what would Jesus do? Should I get angry and honk my horn and flip the person off? Oh, what would Jesus do? He probably wouldn't do that. Maybe that should just be my answer. Don't even have to pray about it. He's already given me the example. What would Jesus do? My devotion to him ought to cause me to be asking these questions. They devoted themselves to some key things. We need to dig a little bit deeper into these things. The first thing. It says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. Well, what were the apostles' teaching? Probably an important question. One thing we know right off the bat, plain and simple, they were teaching and preaching the gospel for the very first time because it's just been brought to fruition. They're teaching and preaching to people. That Jesus Christ, you know, the one that we crucified, well, he came and he gave himself to die on that cross, rose from the dead so that you and I might have life and might have victory over sin. They were definitely preaching and teaching that. Go back into Acts chapter two and look at what Peter preached. But you know what else they were preaching besides just the gospel? They were preaching the word. And granted, we understand that the word is the gospel. But get this, what was the Old Testament doing? It was pointing to somebody. It was all pointing to Jesus. And so now for the very first time, they're able to say to people, we understand what all those laws and rules and all those kings and all those prophets and all those lives were about. Abraham, Joseph, Moses, David, they were all pointing to Jesus. They got up and they preached the Old Testament. But you know what's amazingly cool? Is that they preached the New Testament before we knew it was the New Testament. Right now you're going, what? Because what they began teaching and preaching and writing, we thank the Lord 2,000 years later, we have it right here at our disposal So they were hearing it like fresh off the lips, whether it was Peter, James, John, Paul writing a letter, they were getting it like ink was fresh on the paper. And again, now, miraculously, we still, thank you, God, have it right here at our fingertips. They devoted themselves to the gospel and to the word. So what are we doing here today? obvious rhetorical question here. But why are we gathered here today? Why did you get up, have your coffee, take a shower, hopefully, and then come here to join the rest of us? We gathered here as the body of Christ, yes, to worship and exalt him. We gathered to be together, but we gathered to devote ourselves to the word of God. And so this brings up a question that I raised several weeks ago that's, again, appropriate to ask. If we're here to devote ourselves to the Word of God, do you have it with you? Like you came to class without your your books? That's kind of weird. I got online this week, and I asked lots of friends who were teachers, this question. If a student showed up to class two or three days in a row without his or her textbook, what would you do? How would you handle it? I brought a few of the responses today. One, and this is by one of our very own members, a high school teacher, he said they would get a zero. We're trying to teach responsibility. Um, A girl named Katie, who happened to be one of my former students, it was funny seeing some of my former students in this and how their lives have now come full circle. She said, I wouldn't let them take it home anymore. Tough luck with their homework, but they need it for class. Someone else said they have to fill out an excuse and walk a lap at recess, then take the excuse home and have their parents sign it and return it the next day. Someone else who's part of our congregation who um, is very, very high up in education said it depends on the age of the student and how critical the textbook is to classroom learning that day. Also depends on whether it's a repeat offense. One of my high school friends, she said, I would ask the student what's going on in his or her life causing them to forget their books. And then I'll end with two of my buddies from growing up. Jeremy, who knows me pretty well, said, I'm hopeful this is some great preacher lesson about carrying your Bible. (laughs) And then my friend Kevin, who was not only a teacher but a coach and an athletic director, he said, now that I'm out of education, I can say what I would really want to do. I'd take the class book copy and I'd hit him over the head with it. (laughs) Joking, of course, I'd hit the parents over the head. They devoted themselves to the word of God, to the apostles' teaching. And friends, we have to understand this is not just an evidence of the church. It's the fruit of a disciple. And so I want to make sure you hear me and and understand where I'm coming from. I I don't have like an angry face right now. Uh, I'm not mad, uh, anything like that. But what I really am is truly perplexed at where we are with our apathy to the word of God. That we gather like this and that this is not our priority. Now, let me, let me throw a couple things out there. Some of you would say, now, hey, wait a minute, Brian. Brian. I read the Bible on my phone or my device. There are some of you who you've got that down. You've figured it out. And if that's you, more power to you. It's not me. I've tried it. I'll make it about five minutes. And then I remember, oh, I can check my email. Oh, I can read the news. Oh, I can go on Twitter. Oh, I can look at ESPN and on and on and on and on and on. Me personally... I just need this. That's it. Now, if you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible, don't you dare leave here today without telling us because we're going to get you one. But friends, I am genuinely perplexed at where we are with this. And I would say to you this morning, That if we gathered a little secret group of Christians from like China, Afghanistan, some areas of the world where you don't wear a shirt that says I'm a Christian, Um, you don't meet in public, Uh, in fact, you hide to gather as the body of Christ, Um, you pass around excerpts of the scripture, which you've gotten from somebody else just to have a little bit of the word of God. If we had a group of those followers of Christ come into this place this morning, the first piece of evidence that they would be looking for to know I am amongst brothers and sisters in Christ would be devotion to the word of God. And if they learned that we have these places like up and down the streets called Christian bookstores. Uh, In fact, you could just drive across the street to Walmart and buy a Bible. In fact, some of you could get, if you go out of the Bible app and open your Amazon app, you could order one and it would be at your door two days from now. Understand this. People beat doors down in their countries to see if one of these is in your house and arrest you. They'll bring it to your door here. My mom got five minutes away from my house with my son going to school a few days ago and I saw Nathan's history book laying on the counter, called him up. They had to turn around and come back. If you know my son, you know Nathan does not want to be late. Nathan doesn't even want to be on time. Nathan wants to be early. But they had to come back for the history book. Bring your Bible. We are here to tear in to the holy word of God and bring some pens, pencils, highlighters, notebooks, whatever. Whatever. I'm going to say glory hallelujah the first time I see an adult walk in this place with a backpack on. (laughs) They devoted themselves to the word of God. Friends, we don't have disciples automatically because we erect this place, call it a church, and you walk in. And we go, oh, you came to church, you're a disciple. That's not the way it works. We have church where we have disciples of Jesus Christ gathered, devoting themselves to the word of God together. That's the church. Speaking of together, they also devoted themselves to the fellowship The fellowship. Last summer, we were in our foundation series and we we looked at our biblical strategy as a church, which is the how do we carry out our mission? And uh, we have been so nice here at The Brook that we plaster our strategy on everything we own. What's our strategy? Worship, grow, serve, together. And the last Sunday of August, when we looked at together, we talked about the difference between community and fellowship. And I want to revisit that with you for just a couple of minutes. When you're looking at words like community and fellowship, the root of a word is different than the definition of a word. You look at community and the root's a no-brainer. It's pretty simple. It's these two very big obvious words just stuck together. Common and unity. Community is this common ground that we find with other people through shared interest. I talked about devotion a few minutes ago, and now it's bleeding into community. See, I can find community with 102 other screaming people in Neyland Stadium in Knoxville, Tennessee, as a Tennessee fan. I try to find that community at least once a year. But you know what's funny is that it's even stronger if I'm at the gym, because I'm a Tennessee fan living in Alabama, y'all. Have mercy a little bit. When I go into the gym, and that other guy walks in with the Tennessee shirt on, trust me, we're having conversation. We're, we're pals all of a sudden. We may even lift weights together. We might go out and have a coffee. Now, that's not true, because I don't drink coffee. But we have this bond, and and it's there. And see, you, some of you have it with people that you find common interest with. Hunters can find community. People who like guns, Star Wars fans, gamers, on and on down the list, Star Trek fans, uh, Grateful Dead fans. You find this community with other people. Why? Because we all have this longing. Every human being has a longing for binding relationships. We all have this longing to be part of something like bigger than us that pulls us together. Every person on the planet has a longing for community. All of us. Community is a feeling, and that's the key word. It is a feeling of fellowship, okay, that comes as a result of common attitudes Interest and goals. Uh, example. Uh, well, let me say this first of all. Community is almost always surface, and it is to some level always temporary. In May of 2016, for two days of my life, Nathan and I we had community with 37,000 other Boston Red Sox fans in Fenway. When you go, you're like, "Oh my gosh, can I be a Red Sox fan? It's amazing." And then we got on a train and went to New York City, and I just felt dirty. <laughs> like I was cheating on my new friends. But those people were not my friends. We were just screaming for the same team together. So when we understand, like, the essence, the, the definition, the reality of what community is, but we also understand the nature of humanity, we begin to understand that all of our ventures and quest for community, they begin from a self-centered starting point. We we go and we connect with that person because somewhere inside of us, we've answered the, the main question. Oh, you're like me. You like that? I like that. Let's like that together. So community, as the world defines it, as the world seeks it out, it always begins with me. Fellowship, on the other hand, fellowship, as Jesus defines it, always begins with the spirit of God and the word of God. Always. I have a commentary in my office on the book of Acts by a guy named Lloyd Ogilvie, I think it was published in like 1981. It is coming into, falling apart into like six different pieces. I will do anything and everything to keep this commentary together because I love it. I want to share with you this morning a couple of things that Ogilvy says in it. And this is one of them. There is no true fellowship without Christ's spirit in us and between us. He is what we have in common. He is what we have in common. He is what binds us together. And so friends, we see Acts chapter 2. We see the people being saved. We see the church beginning. Why? Because they were devoting themselves to the word of God. And as a result, they were devoting themselves to one another. So this brings us to fellowship. If I look at the word community and I see that it it means common unity, that's where it's rooted in. Fellowship is this Greek word that means joint participation. Joint participation. The Greek word is actually one that's worth you knowing and caring about. It's koinonia. I think it's written there on your sermon notes. Koinonia is found all throughout the New Testament. Fellowship is sharing not just interests, but sharing the values, convictions, and burdens of one another. Think about the Apostle Paul's words when he's writing to the Philippians. And he says in chapter 3, I want to know Christ. Paul's just said, uh, I'm, I met Jesus and it's made everything else seem worthless. I want to know him. And the power of his resurrection. And then you remember what he says? And the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. See, if, if Jack or Tony called me and said, hey, Brian, let's get together and, and let's have fellowship. I'd say, yes, let's do it. And they said, hey, by the way, I want to let you know ahead of time, here's how we're going to have fellowship. You're going to share in my suffering. Uh, well, you know, could we like go hit baseballs or something? Maybe before that, that's not going to really be the optimal direction I want to head. But you know what Paul is saying here is if I, what I want to do is I want my life to be joint participation with Jesus Christ. And if I'm going to live like him, if I'm going to speak like him, if I'm going to follow him and seek after him, those things are going to come. But we also know that life, it just throws things at us. Once sin came into this world and wrecked it all, we're all going to walk through the valley. We're all going to suffer. We need to have other people that come alongside us and say, you're not walking by yourself. This is what koinonia looks like. And as I said a moment ago, it's all throughout the New Testament. If you turn to the book of Romans, one away from Acts, Romans chapter 12, in verse five, Paul says, so we, though we are many, are one body in Christ. And individually, what does he say? We're friends, we're pals. No, we are members of one another. That means that when you and I have the fellowship of the Lord, Our lives belong to one another. I I tell like all the folks in my missional community, many of you who are my friends, my home is your home. I don't care what time it is, what day it is, what you need. Now understand, you may walk in the door and it may not look so pretty. The house will look pretty regardless because of my wife. We may not look so good, but we are inviting you in we have to open that up to one another. Our lives have to become, we belong to one another. Turn to Philippians chapter one. In verse 27, Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith, for the sake of of the gospel that you are jointly participating in advancing the kingdom of God in sharing the gospel. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, Koinonia, it's just popping out all over the new Testament. Hebrews 10, 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Why do we come together, uh, like this every Sunday to gather as the body of Christ. Well, one of the reasons is to stir one another up. He goes on and he says, not neglecting to meet together. Don't neglect this as some people do, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Fellowship is devoting ourselves to stirring one another towards Christ. And that requires us coming together regularly. First John chapter 1 Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth of his word, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Why do we do this? So that you too may have fellowship with with us. that You read that and you go, man, John's kind of arrogant, isn't he? Like, does everybody want to have fellowship with us? Well, they should, and here's why. Because we have fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We know we have something that the world needs. We found it. That's koinonia. Going back to Ogilvy, he says this, my definition of church is this, the fellowship of those given by Christ to be to each other what he has been to them so that together they can be to the world a demonstration of the new humanity he died and lives to make possible. This is Jesus when he says in John thirteen thirty five: they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. They'll know that you're devoted to me by the evidence of your devotion to one another. Friends, the greatest miracle in the history of the world is that the God of all creation, in his justice and righteousness, chooses also to be loving and gracious and merciful and not just save us, but pursue us so that he can redeem us and bring us from death to life. That's the greatest miracle ever. Second greatest miracle is that one individual who has been pursued, redeemed, and saved can have fellowship with another individual who has been pursued, redeemed, and saved. The fellowship between us that only comes from the Spirit of God and the Word of God, it is a miracle. Genuine fellowship is a Spirit-filled, Jesus-centered, God-ordained miracle. And I would ask you this morning, don't you want to be a part of a miracle? I'm not saying don't you want to see one. Like that guy couldn't use his hand and now he can use his hand. Awesome. No, I'm talking about doing something that you literally cannot explain someone outside of it. There's no worldly explanation for the invitation that I will give a brother in Christ to speak into my life and rebuke me in my sin. You can't explain that at work. That's only explained through the spirit of God and the word of God the burden and the brokenness that we feel for one another when we hurt. We don't need to walk through those things alone. God has said, bear one another's burdens. That miracle, it takes place when Christ's followers devote themselves to the word of God and to one another. When you and I together determine our foundation and our builder, Same person, Jesus Christ. My words, my actions, my thoughts, my relationships, my whole life, I'm going to build it on him. He's the only foundation that won't crumble. He's the only foundation that will last. Let's pray together. Lord, we confess this morning that a lot of days in our life we probably settle for this pursuit of community. And Lord, we need community. We are part of community. But Lord, we desperately need fellowship. We need to know that there are brothers and sisters that we are walking with side by side for the sake of the gospel. That we are bearing one another's burdens. That we are lifting one another up. Lord Jesus, would you renew our hunger and thirst today for you? Would you remind us this morning that after 40 days with no food and having Satan tempt you, your response to him was, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Lord, would you give us that kind of hunger today for your word? that we might know you. Lord, that we might know who you are. That we might know the power of your resurrection. Lord, that we might know the fellowship of sharing in your suffering. just a moment, we're going to respond to the Lord in song. I want to encourage you uh, to respond to him how you feel the spirit leading you. If you need to come to the foot of the cross or the steps and pray, we invite you to come. If you need someone to pray with you, share with you what it means to put your faith and trust in Christ. Um, some of our pastors and elders and leaders will be in the back. Lord, we want to be the people described right here in Acts chapter 2. Lord, walking together with glad and generous hearts, praising God, finding favor with all the people, with you adding To our number, those who are being saved day after day. We want to be those people. Lord Jesus, we love you and we exalt you. We give you praise and honor and glory. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening to The Brook.